0: hello and welcome to the partly political broadcast the comedy politics podcast that unfolds the truth and then realizes oh god no so folds it back up and pops it in the recycling yes the podcast is back for 2020 I'm still tin and douye and this week as the world tackles the most important news story of our time it's very clear that there are a handful of solutions to the immense problem that is members of the British royal family trying to leave the uk when we all know that if they really love this country they'd continue to have a shitty time here like the rest of us. The Queen has agreed a period of transition with Duke and Duchess of Sussex during which they'll only have a few months to work out trading agreements with the rest of the Royals following which the only options for famous actress Meghan Markle and her husband, whatever it is that he does, are for either the Royal Family to build a bridge between Buckingham Palace and wherever they're heading to in Canada, a Norway option which means they just have to go to Norway instead of Canada, some sort of people's vote where we can all get a say on whether or not we actually give a shit about this when the world is actually on fire, or maybe Maybe some sort of hard royal exit whereby we get rid of all the monarchy in a swift cold turkey revolution because it's clear that if it's a bigger crime within the Windsors to want to stop being abused by a racist press than it is to hang out with a convicted paedophile, I'd hazard that they're now about as useful to the modern day as a beef farm made of plastic straws. It might be a new decade, but it's clear that no one wants change, which is why the Royal Family must stay as dysfunctional as it is, and why Northern Irish parties have agreed to restore devolution, taking them back to how things used to be, a system that worked out so well it led to a complete lack of functioning government for three years. Sinn Féin and the DUP have agreed a power sharing arrangement, likely helped by the DUP not having one with the Conservatives anymore, but probably helped even more by the last election showing that any more of this shit where they get paid for jobs that they aren't doing and they'll all be gone by 2025 and also likely helped even more by Northern Ireland really needing some cash before Brexit turns it into a glorified toll booth. The deal is called New Decade New Approach which sounds like a reform programme for convicted stalkers and it contains legislation for the appointments of an Irish language commissioner and an Ulster Scots commissioner because it's clear the only way they'll be able to work together in Stormont is if neither can understand what the other is saying. Sinn Féin Vice President and wife of Phil Mitchell, Michelle O'Neill, has been appointed Deputy First Minister and leader of the DUP and walking cloakroom, Arlene Foster, has been appointed First Minister again because you can't shirk responsibility for failed policies unless you're in charge of them. Foster said it was time for Stormont to move forward, which I think for her party means the times of the New Testament, while O'Neill said that it's her sincere wish that 2020 brings real change, though she wasn't clear if that was for the better or the worse. So now decisions can finally be made by the executive that have been stalled for the past three years, hopefully fixing issues with healthcare that many workers have been striking about, environmental issues, and if once Brexit goes through, the entire country will be filled with overexpensive WH Smiths that sell giant toberones, and copies of David Cameron's autobiography, Eternally On Sale. UK Prime Minister and what if you pumped a suit full of wall filler Boris Johnson said his government would strongly support the Stormont parties but that it wasn't all about money meaning he'll likely give them little funding but will instead offer occasional comments such as you can do it and I believe in you the latter meaning very little from someone whose belief system barely includes things he can't see his own reflection in. Visiting Belfast in mark of the return of the Northern Irish Assembly Johnson made the odd comment that he could feel the hand of the future beckoning us all forward though it's likely he just misconstrued it, trying to shake off his unwanted growth from under the table. The Assembly's finance minister, Connor Murphy, a man who looks like he's uncertain how to use more than 3% of his mouth, has said the financial package offered falls way short of what was promised, so maybe that hand of the future was just asking Johnson to pass the rest of it over. I suppose a shoddy deal and some really odd comments could be excused as it can't be easy for Johnson trying to be all Mr Big Leader when he spent most of the last few weeks sunning himself in the Caribbean as it appeared his pre-Christmas promises of a people's government just meant one the public had to run themselves because he was too busy having a nice time in Mustique. Why bother to recall Parliament to discuss lots of things you're never going to do anything about anyway? I mean, chances are when Johnson got the call to do something about the situation in Iran, he likely told his staff just to shout at Richard Ratcliffe through the letterbox that he's not in go away and hope that that'd solve it. And while the Prime Minister was away, what was the British government's response to US President and meet Hoover Donald Trump ordering the killing of Iranian Major General and love child of a weasel and a fava bean, Qasem Soleimani, by drone strike in Baghdad? Well, Foreign Secretary and man who looks like he's been meshed together with lots of bits from the reject bin of a tanning factory, Dominic Raab, he said that Iran needed to take the diplomatic route and ease tensions. Yes, that's right. It's up to the country who had a military leader killed to calm down, rather than the one who did the killing. It's like me telling my neighbours that maybe I should call noise pollution officers on them after they complained about me screaming, go fuck yourselves, through the walls every night from 3 till 5am. This isn't to say that Soleimani deserves defending, as he wasn't a particularly nice man, to put it lightly. But it's not really the done thing to just rock up to another country without giving any of your allies an advanced warning and then kill someone off in self-defence in case they did something to you in the future. I mean, Piers Morgan has upset quite a lot of people during his life, and God knows how many more he will do, mainly just by existing. But if another country ordered his death, us in the UK would be pretty livid, right? But I mean, that is mainly because we feel like we should get dibs at doing it first. Yeah? It's also not really self-defence if it's an offence. Otherwise, where does that excuse end? Mass serial killer claims he murdered victims in self-defence just in case at a later date one of them might have scratched his car. But this is President Trump who also said he didn't want a war with Iran in the fashion very much of a man who played dead leg by hitting you and then telling you he doesn't want to play anymore. And a man who has urged other NATO countries to withdraw from the Iranian nuclear agreement a deal to stop Iran developing nuclear weapons so that they can prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons. It's very hard to process how the US president might get to that sort of reasoning, without either first assuming that he thought the nuclear agreement was an agreement to make nuclear weapons, or that perhaps everyone else just does deals like he does, which is with their fingers crossed behind their back, and a complete lack of understanding as to what they're signing. Trump claimed Soleimani was going to blow up four US embassies, which he might have been, but luckily by killing him it meant that instead Iran just retaliated by vowing severe revenge, then firing rockets at a US military base. Iraq, then rolling back their commitment to develop more nuclear weapons, and then by supposedly accidentally blowing up a passenger jet flying to Ukraine, killing 176 people. So well done America, crisis averted, life saved. Iranians have been protesting in response to the shooting down of the Ukrainian airliner, to which Iranian police have responded by shooting them. Though I guess maybe following Trump's understanding of things, they assume by protesters being against unnecessary killings that it actually meant that they were for it. And hey, maybe they just killed them in self-defence. Boris Johnson backed the US's right to defend itself, saying during Prime Minister's questions that Soleimani was responsible for arming many different regimes. So no wonder he's glad of his death, as now there's a lot less market competition for the government's main business export. This notion of preemptive self-defense isn't limited just to the US, as Home Secretary and only person who thinks Norman Bates's smirk at the end of Psycho is an endearing quality, pretty patel, has supported anti-terror police adding environmental campaigners Extinction Rebellion to their list of extremist ideologies. It turns out that now it's extremist to not want children in the future to have to spend every day of their lives swimming and struggling to breathe. Whereas you know, us moderates here are all about winding them and then throwing them in lakes before climate change even hits telling them to just get on with it. But what can I say, we're all just sensible realists over here, and that's how we roll. Patel said it was justified as they have to look at a range of security risks, you know, like the risks XR caused by forcing some people to walk to work or stripping off in the public gallery of the House of Commons so everyone could make jokes for weeks on end about how there's always arses in there. It's quite something to have a woman such as Patel, who was previously sacked from the Cabinet for breaching national security, branding a bunch of people who like the planet as extremists. But then maybe in her ideology, one that seems to involve wishing most people were suffering, they are. This fits with the Conservatives voting against reinstating protections for child refugees into the Brexit withdrawal agreement. No doubt, because I guess in their mentality, if you reunite these kids from war-torn areas with their families, they'll spend less time doing survival swimming training that they'll need for the climate disaster that you're not allowed to protest about. So it's for their own good, isn't it? You know what I mean? And that's how it'll now be for some time, as the majority Conservative government can just vote through whatever they like. The withdrawal agreement passed through Parliament quicker than a bad bout of food poisoning and now the UK is leaving the EU on January 31st. Officials have been ordered to not use the term Brexit after that date as though somehow that'll just make everyone forget that it's still happening. I'm not sure what the brief is to call it afterwards. That fucking thing? The shit show that cannot be named? The ongoing trade hell formerly known as Brexit? Brexit? Who knows, but after then we'll be in the transition period for 11 months, which will give everyone just enough time to tell you that Brexit wasn't that bad as they all retain their EU rights and then find someone else to blame for when things are not quite as fun next January. Maybe it'll be the fault of the Commonwealth or NATO or Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. Maybe the sea. Ultimately, it might lead to walls being built around England by 2050 like a self-determined quarantine that the entire rest of the globe agrees is actually a really great idea. Meanwhile, the opposition are trying to work out who it is that's best to actually oppose all of this by picking a new Labour leader from a batch that looks like a political version of Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. It contains a mix of abilities, from being able to talk about themselves until the Conservatives might die of boredom, all the way to being disliked by both sides of the Brexit debate equally, saying towns as often as they can, or just confusing them about where a hyphen goes until they implode with apathy. The candidates that got enough support from fellow MPs to be on the ballot are Minecraft skin, Sir Keir Starmer, minor character in an anime, Rebecca Long-Bailey, potato print, Lisa Nandy, asked to go in front of you in the queue as she'll just be quick but then isn't, Jess Phillips, and the teacher who's nice at parents' evenings but not any other time, Emily Thornberry. Star of Alien 3, Clive Lewis sadly didn't make the ballot after Labour MPs seemed to take their cue on how to vote from the Oscar nominations. Current favourite, according to polls and bookies, is Starmer, who says Labour has a mountain to climb, which I feel just adds to the difficulties they'll have against the majority government. Imagine doing PMQs with altitude sickness. Starmer doesn't want anyone to trash talk Corbyn's years or those under Brown or Blair, but he didn't mention Miliband, so I expect every day he'll be saying things like immigration mug, how shit was that, and basing his entire campaign on not having a massive stone with his pledges on it. The winner will be announced on April the 4th, as will the deputy leader, and then we can all breathe a big sigh of relief as there'll be no more waiting to see exactly why everyone in their own party will hate whoever's now in charge and queue up to take turns doing interviews about how great it would be if absolutely anyone else won. Australia has been consumed by massive bushfires, but not in the way that Gwyneth Paltrow would do them and sell them. As climate change has been named as the number one reason over 10 million hectares of bush, forest and parks have been ablaze, with 28 people dying so far and many made homeless. Australian Prime Minister and the man with the sort of face if you saw it under a headline about stuffed bodies into pipes, you'd go, yeah, that makes sense. Scott Morrison was criticised for staying on holiday while the country was in crisis. Considering how little he and his Liberal Party have done to tackle climate change, I'm starting to wonder if actually the key is for us to persuade leaders like him and Boris Johnson to just stay on holiday and paying for them to be away while we fix stuff might be a lot cheaper than having them in office. But of course, none of that is as important as Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, a story that mostly proves, once again, there are so few good roles for black actresses in the UK that they have to move to North America for meaningful work. Who could begrudge either of those two for wanting to step back from the royal family when standing in front of Prince Andrew seems so much more dangerous? And you might think, but honestly, why does everyone give a fuck? But fucks you should give, because without the royal family, what exactly is the United Kingdom? That's right, a united dom. And if Scotland gets another independence referendum and Ireland is perhaps reunited, then we'd just be a dom. And based on recent pictures of Johnson's special advisor and Scooter from the Muppets, but on crack Dominic Cummings, wandering into number 10 with his ass hanging out of his trousers, looking like he just escaped a gale force wind, maybe that is who we will be. Scruffy, chaotic, think we're smarter than we are, but ultimately we're just a crank whose trousers fall down like a tragic clown act. Maybe, we should all be asking if Harry and Meghan can take us with them. Luckily, we still have the Festival of Brexit to look forward to, which will apparently be taking place in 2022. Although, if it's true to its name, it'll actually happen in 2024, where all ticket-goers will have to spend 11 months standing in a field, waiting for absolutely anything noticeable to happen. Happy New Year, Parpol Brods. Can I still say that? I mean, we're 14 days in, and so far with Iran, I mean, that's war, isn't it? That's war. Then the Aussie fires, that's death. Brexit is probably conquest, isn't it? So I guess it's just famine that we need to audition for, and we should have a mighty apocalypse heading our way. Sometimes it's pestilence instead of conquest, though, isn't it? I mean, it all depends on how picky you are about your apocalypse. I mean, if you're a purist who only goes by the uh, Viktor Vasnetsov, uh, you'll be all content with what we've got so far. But if you're on a Sleepy Hollow or Jewish encyclopedia tip, then you're going to be left waiting. So sorry about that. I'm certain that is what would happen in an apocalypse, isn't it? Everyone on Twitter would just be replying to videos of a burning skeleton riding a dark horse through swathes of screaming villagers by saying, that's not war actually, that's fire, a latter incarnation whereby it was deemed that war was a byproduct of the four horsemen. Uh, no, that is actually death because as you can see by the others, war is the meek 14-year-old sitting in a gaming chair controlling a drone. Ah, sorry, it's a far too gloomy an intro, isn't it? I'm actually fairly cheery at the moment as I'm avoiding social media in order to read more and because all them sites were so full of people being miserable and horrible to each other I thought reading might cheer me up. Then the first book I read was The Amazing Station Eleven by Emily St John Mandel and that was all about a flu wiping out most of the Earth's population and now I'm reading The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemisin and that's all about the end of the world and I had a real moment of clarity where I realised... Oh, wait, maybe social media wasn't the issue. They are both excellent, though, and I would highly recommend for sort of uh, brilliant escapism that is also kind of horrible realism. Um, did you have good Christmases? Let's be happier. Did you have good Christmases? And the bit after that when it's actually good because you don't have to do Christmas anymore, and then the bit after that, which is January, and you're like, no, nah, fuck, why would I do this dry? We very much need booze. I um, hope that you did. hope you had lovely times. And thanks for coming back to this show full of New Year's joy and friendly notions of apocalypta. Um, Also, uh, random wind noises. You may get random wind noises through this. Um, It's not me. I promise I have been eating a lot of vegetables because it's January and I'm not even being healthy as some sort of resolution. I just had to do it. It got to a point where my body went, you've had so much cheese that if you don't eat vegetables solidly for a month, you might die. Uh, So I'm on all vegetables. Anyway, it's not my wind. Um, It's Storm uh, Brendan that's going on outside making noises like someone's mauling a cat. Um, And I really hope that it isn't just someone mauling a cat. Otherwise, I've been hugely ignorant of it, and I'm going to get in a lot of trouble when I wake up tomorrow and, and the garden's full of mauled cats. Anyway, um, sorry for lack of bonus content during the festive break. I was having some actual downtime, which was lovely, and I understand that on the new Stradamus bonus episode, which a handful of you listened to, um, there is an editing fuck-up, which you can tell as I say something, pause, and then I say it again, but not as shit. And I left that in, which is sloppy, isn't it? Um, thank you to regular pod helper Cat Day for letting me know that. Um, Basically... Uh, during Christmas I was mostly drunk and my body that wasn't alcohol was 98% roast potato so that sort of thing will happen when, when that occurs won't it um, I'm not anywhere near as drunk now and I'm much less potato in content though sadly still largely potato in appearance so it should happen less um, Kat's suggestion was that instead of pausing I should make a loud noise when I make a mistake so I'll see it when editing except I'm usually so loud and have to quiet myself down on all these recordings but I think all that would do is burst your eardrums as I accidentally leave in all my screams through sloppy editing it's the sloppy editing it's problem. It's not the noises I make. And um, look here, I'm a little lone podcaster all by myself, and chances are high that mistakes will happen, and that's obviously what makes this show cult and cool and underground, unlike all those actually popular ones. Um, of course, you can help me reduce how many mistakes there are by funding my lifestyle so that all I do is podcast and I don't spend time on anything else. I send my daughter away to be guarded 24-7 by a cerebus and spend my days in a small plastic bubble shouting descriptions of Boris Johnson into a microphone. Should you wish that to be the case, or somewhere near to it, then you can please donate to the ko-fi.com forward slash bro site or to the patreon.com forward slash Um both of which very much help. Um, and it was my birthday last week. Fancy sending me a belated birthday drink that I don't need because i really had too much booze over Christmas, send it anyway. Um, And shout out to Mark, Emma and Anonymous for the donations over Christmas time, all of which went towards very, very useful things and definitely not booze and potatoes. Um, Thank you also to whoever gave the show a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And look, I know I say all this boring shit every single week, but this podcast has been going on for three years now. Yeah, really? I know all that time that you can't get back. Wasted it. Sorry. And I probably could have done something actually good. Three years. Bloody hell. But no, here I am. And for 2020, in between all the apocalypse TikToks, why not use your phone time to recommend this show to some of them podcast newsletters or websites or people you know or general social media where everyone who sees it can and then tell you exactly why you're wrong to like this show. And just all of that please. As it would be nice to be able to keep justifying why every Monday I ignore my family apart from occasionally shouting down the stairs. Any ideas what I could describe Emily Thornbury as as I'm really stuck on it. And then my daughter just says absolutely nothing useful because she's still not yet even two. Also, as I say every week, I really do need help with suggestions of who to interview this year. Um, I'm thinking that now the government are pretty much going to be doing what they like for the next five years. Maybe it's best to speak to grassroots activists who are changing their own areas of life and work, or people who can tell us how to cope, what to be doing, things like that. Um, There's also tons of areas of politics I've never spoken to anyone about on this show. What are they? I've got no idea. I obviously haven't, I haven't had them on the show. How would I know what they are? My daughter has spent today singing Iggle Piggles' song from In the Night Garden at me all day. I've got nothing else in my brain, so please help and send in suggestions for interviewees or subjects to interview people on to all the usual places that I will be plugging later on in this episode. This week, I am speaking to comedian Jenan Yunus about why the recent events in Iran are bad news for Iraq and why the left and the West in general keep getting things wrong about the Middle East. Plus, there is a super speedy catch-up of everything that's happened while you were knee-deep in stuffing. Here we go. If you look up diagrams of Middle Eastern conflict on your search engine of choice, you get a series of pictures that look like the crayon efforts my daughter has made on most of our walls. Either that means she's secretly been studying the extensive and complicated history and relationships of the many countries, factions and religions in the area, or to put it lightly, to say politics in the Middle East is complicated is an understatement. According to that there, most of the news, the current situation is just about the US and Iran, but that's ignoring Iraq, which has not only been one of the US's favourite areas for looting this century, but is also a country that Iran holds much sway over now, and where most of the violence has taken place, since old highlighter pen crossed with a blancmange, Donald Trump, decided to assassinate that one from the bridge and killing Eve, oh no wait, it's not him, phew, Qasem Soleimani. And if you ignore Iraq, then it means you're forgetting about the forever fight against the only type of ISIS you wouldn't want in the summer, the Islamic State, or President of Turkey and what if in cats they superimpose the faces of really shitty cats onto human bodies instead, Recep Erdogan, when he ordered attacks on northern Iraq, or Israel's hatred of Iran, or Syria still being a catastrophic shitshow, or all the climate change that's now affecting the arable land in the area, or hundreds of years of history that ultimately suggest... Either you do some serious reading or maybe sit this one out and work on grasping something easier like, I don't know, quantum physics or finding the end of the tape. So where do you begin if you've only got time for a summary instead of the Sumerians? Well, this week I spoke to Jenan Yunus. Jenan is a very, very funny uh, comedian um, of Iraqi and Palestinian heritage who somehow managed to explain things about the Middle East and its complications to audiences of drunk people and make them laugh at the same time. Jenan has just recently had a special on BBC Sounds and is currently working on her brand new show for the Vaults Festival. So I asked her, uh, unhelpfully, to just temporarily skip the gags and instead explain to me, a man who is not drunk but is tired and an idiot, just why we need to be focusing on what Trump's mouth Fart fest with Iran means for Iraq, what the recent mostly unreported here protests in Iraq have been all about, and also just why the West, and in particular the left, keep getting things so very wrong about the Middle East. And if this chat doesn't help you out, then let me know and I'll send you the red and green swirly mess my daughter somehow drew on our fridge when I had my back turned for all of 30 seconds. Here's Jenan. So, Janan, um, what's happening in Iran at the moment? And I say what's happening in Iran at the moment. We're speaking on Sunday. We don't quite know what will be happening in Iran by the time listeners hear this podcast. Um, it seems to be daily, uh, daily awfulness. Um, does it feel to you like a, a beginning of a repeat of what happened uh, in Iraq in in the Iraq War?
1: I have to say, I think it feels quite different for a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, I think we need to remember that Iran hasn't really been in direct conflict with anyone for quite some time. And whilst its relationship with America has been under tension with repeated sanctions, you know, continued raised eyebrows of disapproval, that tension has still been kept at a relative distance. So if you're actually in Iraq, the USA and Iran would essentially be regarded as two sides of the same coin in terms of their power, power struggle for sort of political influence. Um, So that's my first difference that I can see. The second issue is obviously Soleimani's killing. And I'm not going to to go into details of who he is, but his killing was an assassination without any declaration of war. And that's the other key difference here. Donald Trump doesn't strike anyone as the type of person that would be shy about launching into a war. I think the other difference is as well, is that he was killed not on Iranian soil, but on Iraqi soil. And that also isn't a coincidence. I think Iraq is very much at the heart of what's happening between the US and Iran. And that's been overlooked a lot as well. Um, You know, Iran has an awful lot of influence in terms of politics and the economic state of Iraq. And particularly in in recent years, the entire country is Timor pro-Iran militias and whether they're they're not just Shiite Iraqis with an allegiance to Iran, but they're Iranians themselves that sort of swamped the country. And there is an ultimate aim of absorbing Iraq into their own state. So whilst the U.S. has still got a presence in Iraq, they've certainly not got nowhere near as much political influence as Iran does at the moment. So the theories are that actually this is not so much uh, a move towards another war this is more just a power struggle between Iran and the US over Iraq.
0: Right, because one of the things I've heard, and I you don't want to go into too much into who Soleimani is, but one of the, the things I heard was that he was known as the president of Iraq for a little while.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Now, absolutely, on the, gra- on the shop floor in Iraq, that is what the people talk about in conversation. Anecdotally, that is definitely something that is heard very, very commonly, or was heard very commonly.
0: So, what you're saying is this, this is a power struggle almost over Iraq. What situation is Iraq in at the moment? And I, I, I don't really know or understand the politics of Iraq. But they have a caretaker government, don't they?
1: They do. So, at the moment, and I think, again, this is something that we haven't really seen reported in the Western media at all. Since October, there have been a huge number of protests, anti government protests in Iraq, that have just swamped the entire country. And a lot of that is has come from a place of wanting sovereignty, uh wanting to move away from foreign intervention. So again, away from the influence of Iran. And whilst the protests aren't anti-American, they're certainly not pro-American either. Uh, they also come from a place of failing public services, seeing a government that's hugely corrupt, living lavish lifestyles in this fortified green zone. Uh, you know, lack of electricity, lack of running water, highest unemployment rate they've seen, um, failing healthcare education systems. It's sort of a grassroots working class movement. And we haven't really seen very much of it in the news. And the thing is, it isn't without consequence. There have been hundreds of unarmed protesters that have been murdered, uh, thousands more that have been injured. And it's, has been cited as the death has been seen as a consequence of the pro-Iranian militias in the region. So if you think about it from that perspective, the timing of all of this seems like an opportunistic moment for the U.S. to move back in and possibly take more political influence and, and, and control in the area.
0: Because uh, there was a point where Iraq sort of said that they want the U.S. troops to to move out of uh, the the country. Uh, And I'm guessing something like this would mean that actually the U.S. troops would need to stay there.
1: And they're moving in. Yes. I think there are more U.S. troops that are going into Iraq now. So uh, I think that would, again, support this theory that this is a power struggle. People don't, the U.S. and Iran don't want a war. they want to fight for whoever is dominant in, in Iraq politically. And, and the other thing that backs up that theory is whilst re- Iran retaliated uh, against Soleimani's assassination and they tried to target U.S. bases, apparently there were no casualties. They were, they were very much off target, um, which shows an enormous amount of restraint. And I think if we were going to have a war, it would have happened by
0: now. Right, so hopefully uh, we shouldn't be looking at a war whatsoever. But I'm guessing the future of Iraq then is quite concerning. And and I'd have thought that the protests of the people, um, you know, if people are angry, they don't, they wouldn't necessarily want a US, uh, you know, further US control either.
1: No, I I totally agree with that. I don't think they do. But at the same time, particularly with all the killings that have happened with the pro-Iranian militia. Particularly in the last couple of days, it seems like there is this tendency towards, well, who's the lesser of the two evils? And I think there is a growing cohort of people that are temporarily willing to welcome America in. That is not the consensus yet, but that, that I think we are going to see a slight change in attitude towards the US on the shop floor in Iraq.
0: And does that concern you?
1: Well, this is certainly not what the protesters are after. There is also a sense from them that they want their own sovereignty. They want lack of they they want all foreign influence out of Iraq, and this is almost another step back, isn't it? it by welcoming the US back in.
0: So the the current current Iraqi government, though, are they... um, Because there was definitely a while where the Iraqi government were kind of appointed by the US. Um, And if the current Iraqi government is sort of a caretaker or they're not, you know, not a proper government in place, what stops or what is stopping the Iraqi people having a democracy?
1: (laughs) I, I think essentially the government, the current government in Iraq is behaving like a royal family. They are... Taking in salaries that are ridiculous and extortionate. Um, They're very well protected um, geographically within the green zone, but they're also protected by U.S. troops. Um, And the other difference with the protesters is that they want a peaceful regime change. They don't want to see any kind of conflict. They've had enough of conflict. That's also a clear message that's coming through. The other aspect of this is that politics in Iraq has been very much dominated by religion-based politics and ethnic-based politics. And there is also a sense from the protesters that they want to move away towards secularism and inclusivity. So the themes and the ideology behind it are, are grossly very, very different to what is in place now. Um, and that would require a huge shift of attitude from those in, in Parliament.
0: So the people are more progressive than than those in power?
1: Like Certainly, yes.
0: Obviously, this this feeling uh, from from the people from the, from the public in Iraq must have been building for quite some time. Um, but when there was the Arab Spring uh, in the beginning of oh, last decade, oh my goodness, I forget that we're in twenty twenty. Um, the the Arab Spring didn't really kick off in Iraq in the same way it did in other areas. Are we seeing a sort of you know belated Arab Spring now?
1: Partly, yes, and I think that the people have reached breaking point. I think they've reached their threshold of how much they can tolerate. The living conditions, basic living conditions are appalling and they have just continued to decline since the 2003 invasion. Let's not forget that Iraq has been in a conflict of some sort almost back to back. So we've had Iran-Iraq, Gulf War, 10 years of sanctions, which claimed a lot of lives, uh, followed by this and then ISIS. So They've sort of just had enough, and it doesn't look like the protests are going to ease off. So despite what's been happening with Iran and U.S. hosted by Iraq, the protests are still continuing. They're not hindered by the fact that they're being killed and injured and kidnapped by the pro-Iranian militia. They're there to make a point, and they're not going to stop till they see a change in their government.
0: Um, You mentioned ISIS there as well. uh, 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 Oh my goodness, this is terrible, isn't it? This is uh, the afternoon, I already can't talk. Um, I have heard from a number of people that the biggest threat for quite some years in that region has been ISIS, and yet right now with the US-Iran situation, it seems like ISIS is being completely and utterly ignored. Um, Does that mean that that's going to become a danger again?
1: That is a theoretical possibility, and I think that is a worry, particularly with everyone's attention focused on What's going to happen next with Iran? What's going to happen next with the U.S.? I mean, ISIS came out recently and praised the assassination of Soleimani. And you wonder whether, with everyone's focus elsewhere, whether this gives them a chance to regroup, reemerge, forge new alliances, and perhaps become a threat once again. I don't know the answer to that, but theoretically, that that is, of course, the worry. They're not completely, they haven't been completely destroyed or eliminated. Remnants of ISIS are are still around in the region.
0: It's that time of the year.
1: Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves,
0: feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Uh, we'll be back with Jen in a minute, but first... Okay, so I know this sounds a bit weird, but while you and I were pretending to have some sort of break based around vague religious narratives that were harshly ripped from ancient pagan midwinter celebrations but without the fun, angry dear god or sacrifices, politics was actually still happening. I know, right? I mean, usually everything around the entire globe, even in countries that don't do Christmas, all just chill for a couple of weeks and agree, like a World War II football game of life, to just have a small break. Don't they? Don't they? Well... None of that for the 2019-2020 mid-between times, because it's hard to stop something that is already going so rapidly downhill. And so, here for you, who, like me, probably put your brain into sleep mode until a few days ago where it's woken up all fogged by thoughts of World War 3, well hey, at least they'll have a cool logo where the 3 looks like a W but on its side, or confusion as to how a royal couple can give up doing something when no one's really sure what it is that they do anyway. If you, like me, feel like that, then here's a speedy rundown of the news on what you might have missed. The national living wage, which always sounds like a really boring B-movie, is to be raised by 6.2% in April, which is great news as the living wage goes up to £8.72 per hour, while the minimum wage for 21 to 24 year olds, as you know they don't have to live, they just have to be minimum, obviously, that goes up to £8.20. That is more than four times the rate of inflation, but what it isn't is anywhere near the recommended amounts as calculated by the Living Wage Foundation, which suggests £9.30 across the UK and £10.75 in London because buying a pint in the capital will bankrupt you. So hooray for increase, but all that increase will do is make sure you can just slightly not afford things instead of completely not afford them, which isn't actually as good as actually affording them. But hey, at least if you're 21 to 24, you don't even have to live, so it's probably dead cheap to survive for you if you don't even need food and stuff like that. Transport secretary and what if your pet had a rare disease Grant Shapps has announced that poor performances mean that it's the end of the franchise for Northern Rail so that could mean a temporary contract for another rail company followed by bidding by various companies for a more permanent contract or for the government to fully or partly re-nationalise the line but look it's Grant Shapps in charge so let's be honest he'll probably give it back to Northern Rail after they told him they're now called raw the nail or someone that's never run a rail service will get it like say Londis or he'll somehow give it to G4S or even his predecessor Sir Chris Grayling, who will manage to get the whole service stuck in a ditch within about three days. Northern Rail say their failings are partly to do with the tonne of infrastructure that was promised in the north that totally hasn't happened, which the Department of Transport are apparently looking into, but chances are it'll be new name still on the wrong track. The Housing Secretary and stock photo of a Conservative, I mean really, just... Imagine what a Conservative looks like. Yeah, it's him. It's exactly him. Robert Jenrick has announced a £4 million fund to pursue rogue landlords. Not literally, as I don't think chasing them down the street would be that helpful. But to be fair, some of my old landlords, I'd have happily helped fund that to happen. Um, About 1.2 million private rented homes are considered non-decent. Which, no, doesn't just mean its tenants are sitting around in their pants like I do. It means they aren't in a reasonable state of repair and are full of health and safety hazards. A lot of councils no longer have the funding to be able to prosecute bad landlords, and yet again, while £4 million is handy, it's not really enough for councils to actively pursue rogue landlords, more just occasionally shout at them from afar and maybe even shake a fist or two. The Residential Landlords Association say that the government need to provide proper, regular funding to councils to tackle this problem, and Labour have suggested a new legal charter of rights for tenants. But it's a majority Conservative government, so it's likely they'll do the bare minimum they can to say they're doing something while not actually doing it properly. Much like when a landlord tells you they fixed the extractor fan in the bathroom because they paid the bare minimum for some idiot to come by and do it, and then it broke a day later, and then you have to live in a palace of mould and become accustomed to it in a way that from then on means you can only live in a bog area or swamp as clean air hurts to breathe. Um, I mean, so say, my friends. Incidentally, Robert Jenrick also tried to launch a New Government Town of the Year competition, but it went wrong when the launch tour was to be kicked off in Wolverhampton, which is a city. But I guess that might explain why the lack of funding for all these rogue landlords and everything else is so minimum, if Jenrick just assumes that most cities are actually the size of Hamlets. Still, I guess maybe that would qualify Wolverhampton immediately as a winner, when it's already done so well as a town, it's now a city. The UK's nuclear weapons programme is £1.3 billion over budget, which means that all infrastructure projects designed to update and facilitate the UK's defence systems are between one and six years behind schedule. So, luckily for all the Labour leadership candidates who are saying they'd press the button if they had to, they'd probably have a little while to think about it before anything actually happened. Nearly all of the extra costs are to do with projects starting too early and then having to be revised, which is really unlike this government, huh? Isn't it? This is when I need a sarcasm font, but for my voice... Chief Special Advisor and expert fucking weirdo Dominic Cummings has talked about overhauling how the Ministry of Defence buy equipment, so chances are he'll change it so that all the money just goes to him because he's an absolute weapon. A £3 million fund has been given to outreach job centre workers to speak to homeless people, rough sleeping and in temporary accommodation. Because, you know, that's definitely what's going to help them, isn't it? You know, someone popping by to say you need to go work in a pound stretcher on zero hours wage. Um, I mean, that's clearly what's stopping you from owning a mansion. There is supposed goodwill behind this, uh, with job centre staff aiming to advise people how to get work and find accommodation. Even though most of their advice will be avoid getting pointless job centre sanctions and try your best not to go on universal credit, as it'll just make everything worse. Essentially, to do any good, they'll have to be emissaries from the DWP, warning people away from the DWP. Homelessness has increased by 11.4% in the last 12 months, and now, as well as having a properly shit time and no home, you can also get told that you've been sanctioned for not turning up to the meeting you were sent a letter about but never got. Sounds great. Of course, that's not all the news you've missed, but a few morsels of failings before we get fully into a parliamentary term run by a government who are trying their best to not allow any scrutiny of their doings, knowing full well it's going to be very hard to blame anyone else for all the shit bits in five years' time. Still, I'm sure Robert Jenrick isn't too bothered, as he's certain the entire 10 people population of the UK will definitely vote them back in. And now, back to Jinan. Now, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is uh, when you dropped me a line about being in this podcast a little while ago, um, you said that you wanted to talk about how, what the left or what the what the left uh, keep getting wrong about the Middle East, which I thought sounded fascinating um, and it, because it does it does feel like, as you said, we, we haven't even heard about these. I, I didn't know these protests were happening until you told me about mm-hmm. them. I've looked them up and, and found it on Al Jazeera's reported that no Western media, you know, and... Um, uh, and, and, and ever since the, the Chilcot report came out, it felt like that came out and everyone went, oh, we were wrong about Iraq then. And then it disappeared and no one's cared since. So how, I mean, what what are we getting wrong? And, and do you just feel like, uh, I mean, do you just feel ignored?
1: I think if we talk about the anti-government protests, I think one of the reasons why it didn't really hit the headlines is that, Ever since the 2003 invasion, even though the consensus is, yes, it was an illegal war. Yes, it was unjust. The public has sort of been peddled this rhetoric of, well, at least we established democracy. We've done something okay. But these protests are the exact polar opposite of it. It's displaying to the world that actually nothing positive has come out of the 2003 invasion whatsoever. And I think that is part of the reason why it hasn't been reported we don't want to acknowledge it we don't really want to know we don't really want to know the reality um and the other thing i would say is that we have a tendency in the west to very much oversimplify and compartmentalize the middle east i think if you look at any documentary or news article or piece you know a lot of the wording is even directed towards an oversimplified approach. You know, it'll be in the Arab world or in the Islamic world, and I think it's much more complex than that. If I use Iraq as an example to illustrate my point, Iraq is actually a hugely, and always has been, multi-ethnic, multi-religious country, and the discussion around it is often reduced to just Shia'aqs than Kurds. And if, let's say, we talk about the indigenous Assyrian population in Iraq, most of your listeners, would probably not even realize that there was such a thing. They are actually undergoing a real-time cultural genocide, which is completely overlooked. If you even googled uh, the Assyrians in Iraq, you would certainly not come up with any kind of Western journalist who'd covered it in any capacity whatsoever. And the north of Iraq, where most of the Assyrians are located, is under the KRD, so the Kurdish regional government. And that is often applauded by Western governments as being an exemplary, quote-unquote, democracy uh, in its execution and function, which is actually guilty of huge ongoing human rights abuses. Um, I mean, for example, their prime minister and president, the Barzani family, are related to each other. One, I think they're cousins, and I think the previous president was their uncle or their dad, you know. They're essentially just recycling wow. power amongst themselves. That is certainly not what I would call a democracy. But on a on a serious note, if if people that are listening think that I'm using quite strong words here, if if I say, for example, you know, I use the term cultural genocide. By that I mean indigenous people are subjected to huge injustices by the KLG. For example, they're not allowed to teach their own language in schools. Their towns and villages are being re- renamed to Kurdish names. Uh, Assyrian properties being evicted and Kurdish uh, families are being rehoused. You know, Assyrians aren't even allowed to call themselves Assyrians in the north of Iraq. They're being told to call themselves Kurdish Christians. So it's 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 partly out of this need to push this ethno-nationalistic agenda, and that comes from. I think also this Western idea and need to simplify something. We can't deal with too many things in one go. We, we've just got to just homogenize it, homogenize it all. And those are just some of the examples of, of what is happening in, in northern Iraq. Um, it's seen by the indigenous people as an occupation. And again, I use the word genocide, which is a strong word. But I'll give you an example of why I think that is appropriate the indigenous population of Iraq has been there for thousands of years. A hundred years ago, after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, the British promised them a state. So within a hundred years, they've gone from being a population that was large enough to have their own country in the Middle East to now numbering less than 150,000 people. That is significant. You've not heard that story. You're not going to hear that story. And that is also... That has also been pushed by the Western backing of the the Kurdish regional government, but also made worse by what happened during the 2003 invasion, Uh, because that undoubtedly helped fuel ISIS, which, again, not an actual genocide, but a huge exodus of people from the region. So that is one example and I think in particular whilst the left wing always seem to hype up a lot and defend some of the issues that are going on in the Middle East I think they do turn a blind eye to some issues it's they select their causes and I have a few theories about why that is I mean for example I think a lot of it is ignorance to the history of the land, not wanting to know what the demo, what the true demographics are. Um, and I mean, for example, the Kurds as an ethnic group are actually the most recent immigrants to the region. Um, they came in via Asia Minor, and there is not an insignificant number of people in the north of Iraq who are Kurdish who weren't even born in in Iraq themselves. They came in from Iran or Turkey. Um that's just an example of history that people wouldn't necessarily be aware of. But I also think given some of the, you know, given the Assyrians, for example, in particular, they are a Christian ethnic group. And I think there is always a huge taboo around Christianity, particularly given how secular we are in the West. And the other theory that I have, and that's just really based on conversation with people that are left wing is, so I think, for example, the right wing is seen as having an issue with being Islamophobic. The left wing have to be the polar opposite of that. And I think the left wing worry that if they, uh, uh, if they see themselves as supporting an ethnic group or a cause or an organization that is quote unquote ethnic, but not Muslim, that they almost will end up being, thought of as being in that default Islamophobic position. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I I mean, I wonder, I play uh, devil's advocate here and also someone who's on the left, I suppose I should, probably should try and defend it a bit, um, but not very well. But I, I, I do feel like sometimes the situation is so complicated, it's very hard to uh correctly know where to stand yeah, on it. and yeah. like a lot of this um this recent for example the, the Iran situation has all been well Soleimani was evil so that's that and you go I'm sure yeah. it isn't that easy it can't just be one man is so evil that he has to you know go through illegal boundaries and then suddenly you get into a complicated issue and as you say this is you know even just in your explanation today it's involved Iraq and as well as Iran and, and even taking a, a you can't just take a side I suppose it feels like you have to have a real depth of knowledge no, I- to be able to take apart what's happening and that's very hard to argue um without you know having the time to do it i suppose
1: i think no 100 percent. i think it is i think that's part of my issue i think it's much more complex and we just definitely want to oversimplify it we want to categorize someone as being the bad guy or someone being the good guy and um, i mean another example is when turkish troops last year started bombing northern syria Everyone came out as saying, this is appalling, think about what the Kurds did in the fight against ISIS, hashtag free Rojava. Northern Syria, again, just like Iraq, is very multi-ethnic and multi-religious, again has a large Assyrian indigenous population. It wasn't just the Kurds that were being attacked by Turkey, it was everyone in that region that was being attacked by Turkey why don't we mention it? It's, you know, it's an issue of humanity. It's not an issue of why do we limit it to one ethnic group? The other issue is, whilst I understand where the hashtag Rojava came from, the West wanted to show empathy, Rojava doesn't exist. It's a Kurdish term used in part for this theoretical ideology of having their own independent state by hashtagging that you're pushing again that ethno-nationalistic agenda you're saying that everyone else in the region doesn't matter you're contribute you're you're almost becoming an accessory to that cultural genocide in a way um and that again i know that sounds harsh but that's where a lot of people that aren't kurdish that's how they would interpret it
0: yeah so it's I mean, this feels like the way in which the Middle East, is, as you sort of mentioned before, it's always been reported in big headlines. You know, there are weapons of mass destruction. That's all we heard for ages. And that was a reason to bomb Iraq. And there wasn't much else about the culture or about the people or the way in which everything functioned or the relationship to other countries or oil or, you know, it was the, it's the one line kind of um, story that we're given. So is is the issue in... You know, should we all be looking more at uh, Middle Eastern news sites? Should we, how do we tackle this?
1: Again, it's different. I wish I had a list of really good resources to look at, and I think there are hardly any. I think just be wary of what you hear. I think the only places that I might direct people towards are if you want to gain a perspective of things that are grossly underreported, particularly from the view of Indigenous or marginalised groups in the Middle East. Um, There are probably two sources. One is the Assyrian Policy Institute, which are based in Washington. Um, uh, They're on social media and publish very well-researched articles about what is happening currently. Um, The other person to look at is a political writer who's based in London called Max J. Joseph. He's a prolific tweeter. Um, He writes up-to-date news articles about what is happening, particularly in Iraq um but you can also look at his website if you want a little bit more about the background and the history of the region i think that's something that we forget very quickly as well we just want to know we just want a snapshot idea of what's happening now but the history and by that i mean the last 100 200 years is still very very re- relevant and very very resonant in the middle east
0: Okay, on a slightly lighter note, um, you you are a comedian. What? How how do you talk about this? How do you talk about because you, you're you're half half Iraqi and half Palestinian, um, both areas that have have just the history of which has been you know horrendous. <laughs> it's, how do you talk about that in comedy? How do you even approach it, especially when people have these kind of um, very distinct narratives of, of what those places are like? I
1: am I'm also a Syrian, so that's even dif- even more difficult because I'm a minority within a minority so part of the answer to that question is with extreme caution um i when i started comedy i thought i could get away with whatever i wanted and i soon learned that actually you have to sort of sandwich the difficult political stuff often so it's a case of trying to find a way of talking about difficult things in a way that will make people listen and whether that's uh strange analogy with a beetroot sandwich i made honestly you'll just have to turn up to a show that i do to explain the relevance (laughs) of a beetroot sandwich to the middle east or whether it's about talking about how over the top my dad is it's trying to personalize it and reduce it into something that is digestible i'm really sorry i'm going down the line of food puns food references which uh, is not what i (laughs) intended to do
0: But everyone can relate to food, so it (laughs) it, it definitely helps.
1: I I also think it's important, like, I think particularly when I started, I didn't really talk about my ethnicity, and I didn't talk about Assyrian being Assyrian very much, because no one really knows very much about it. But I started doing that quite recently, because I think that's really important. I think you can sometimes communicate more in a 10-minute comedy set about a political situation than all the documentaries and news articles and news pieces put together and if you let's say get through to one person in a room of 80 that's almost that's almost my job done in a way um yeah i feel
0: yeah definitely definitely and i like as well that you sort of mentioned earlier you couldn't direct people to one source but i would suggest that if they come and see your comedy they're probably going to learn quite a lot as well as laugh
1: i would hope so <laughs>
0: Thanks to Jinan for having time to chat this week. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at Jinan underscore Eunice. Uh, that's J-E-N-A-N underscore Y-O-U-N-I-S. Uh, on Instagram at Jinan_does_comedy, Does Comedy. And her website is JinanEunice.com. Also, Janan's BBC Three Counties comedy special is up on BBC Sounds for 16 more days, I think. So check that out ASAP and I'll pop a link in the pod blurb. And I will also pop a link uh, to Janan's work in progress show that she is doing at the Vaults Festival in Waterloo on the 14th of March at 3.30pm called Jananistan. So do check that out because it sounds brilliant. Um, who else this year shall I talk to? I'm keen to interview people, as I mentioned earlier, involved in grassroots movements, as well as topical things, areas I've not yet covered on this podcast in the last few years, defence, foreign policy, there's tons. Maybe anyone that's actually happy that I could talk to. Let me know what or who you'd like to hear from or about and drop me a line at Paul on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could write it on a note and then hide it behind a radiator in a flat you know I'll be moving to in several years' time. And then when I'm trying to use a torch and part of a cop mobile to fish out one of my daughter's toys that she's got stuck there, I'll find it and throw it straight in the bin as it'll be really dusty and horrible. That's totally not uh, an example from my real life there. Totally not. As always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this, the first Partly Political Broadcast podcast of 2020. Thank you for returning to this sound hole for the new year. And should you enjoy hearing how terrible things are through the medium of jokes that are worse and interviews that aren't, please do spread the word about this here podcast to everyone you know. Maybe give it a review on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher or the like, and do chuck us a quid or two at the Patreon or Kofi if you can. Big time thanks to Acast for hosting the show, my brother The Last Skeptic for all the musics, and to Cat Dave for the linear line of notes that always end up on the website. This will be back next week when the Northern Irish New Decade New Approach deal collapses after it's revealed that Boris Johnson has only promised them a pack of gum and a free copy of his book about Churchill, adding that it's not all about money and why don't they just be more optimistic about it. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Donald Trump's Guide to Self-Defense. Why wait around to defend yourself against some total dangers when using Donnie's Guide to Self-Defense, you can just wander up to anyone in your area you don't like, kick them in the face and then tell them to calm the fuck down or you'll call the police. Using this guide, you'll be able to thwart anyone ever thinking about even glancing nasty in your direction as they'll be dead before they leave the house. Defend yourself bigly with Donald Trump's Guide to (laughs) Self-Defense.
1: Amen